we left off on page 97, and much of what Chrysostom has said is offensive to modern sensibilities, not least of which this distinction he makes on page 96 that's worth repeating. It's not to say that there isn't overlap, it's not to say that there aren't elements of exception, but as a general rule, Chrysostom lays out that the husband, the man, his duty is outside the home, and the, the wife, uh, the woman, her duty is inside the home. So he talks about this distinction between public and private. And we considered once again this foundational principle to all of society that's much been lost to us here in 21st century America, and that is that the family, not the individual, is the unit of society. And so the family is a unit. Husband and wife are one flesh. The children are one flesh, products of that one flesh union. It is one family unit. And the husband has a responsibility for the external duties, the wife for the internal duties. There's this beautiful symmetry there. My one critique of Chrysostom is he talks about superior and inferior, and I just, I don't, I see him as different, but I don't see him as necessarily, as one necessarily inferior to the other. So that would be my only critique against what he's saying. Um, but let's simply pick up on 97. We're going to skip around a little today just so we can finish. Actually, we'll skip around a lot today just to make sure we finish. Page 97. And here, let's just pick up at the top. Chrysostom says, Often, indeed, whatever her husband knows of household matters, she knows better. She cannot uh, manage the affairs of the city well, but she can raise children well, which are the greatest of treasures. See, that's the sentiment that I think is is absolutely true and why I don't really like his use or at least the interpreter's use of you know inferior superior because whether one is managing external affairs or internal affairs they're of great importance. Chrysostom continues, she can discover the misbehavior of the maids and oversee the virtue of the servants. She can free her husband from all cares and worries for the house the storerooms, the wool working, the preparation of meals, the maintenance of clothing. She takes care of all the other matters, which it is not fitting or easy for a man to undertake, no matter how competitive he may be, he might be. Yeah, so again, I mean, this is offensive to modern sensibilities. Why should it be? <laughs> I think Chrysostom... If, if you were to sort of resurrect Chrysostom and bring him over to contemporary America, he would see it as upside down clown land. He would, he would not even be able to fathom how it is that, a, that our, our marriages, our families, our society could be so entirely upside down and dysfunctional. That would be his critique um, back at us. Okay, um, then just continuing where we left off, Chrysostom says... After all, this is the work of God's generosity and wisdom, that he who is good at the greater matters is inferior and quite useless in the lesser matters. Now, again, my critique notwithstanding, this is a brilliant point and a really enlightening point, that God in his generosity and wisdom, uh, you know, makes man good at one thing and not the other and makes woman good at one thing and not the other. And so there's this complementary aspect. Um, I know that there's, well, I've heard rumor that in the larger, larger non-denominational Baptistic kind of world, there's all this debate about gender roles and whether or not women should be pastors and kind of this, uh, this argument sometimes goes under the, the label of complementarianism. Um, complementarianism. And... Um, just to, just to totally exclude that whole conversation and define things on, on their own biblical terms, there is a complementary nature there, you know, here, isn't there? 
where the man is to excel on the external things and do some internal things, which are a little bit alien to him. And the woman is to excel in internal things, do a few of the external things, which is somewhat alien to her. That's kind of the, the biblical balance, the traditional roles of the sexes within marriage, etc. And it's just this beautiful thing that God creates this complementary uh, synergism, if you will, and uh, symmetry in the marital relationship. And I like this idea that man and woman need each other. That's where he figure. That's where he. Um, I didn't finish the sentence. So once more, this is the work of God's generosity and wisdom that He who is good at the greater matters is inferior and quite useless in the lesser matters, so that the help of a woman is necessary to Him. And I think that that works both ways. So God humbles both sexes, so that one needs the other and is dependent upon the other in order for the, the whole of the human experience. A man can't just simply say, I'm going to be the head of the household in a way that I, ca- I take care of all the external and internal affairs. It's just not going to work, um, nor really a woman. Um, it simply just doesn't work. Uh, we can make ends meet in a kind of single parent type uh, environment, but that's not the family thriving. Chrysostom continues, if God had made man capable in both areas, it would have been easy for men to despise womankind. If, on the other hand, God had assigned the greater and more important matters to woman, he would have filled women with presumption. For this reason, he did not give both spheres to one sex, lest the other seem inferior and superfluous. Neither did he assign both spheres to each sex equally, lest from equality of honor there should arise strife and contention. If women strove to be counted worthy of the same precedence as their husbands. Well, of course, these tensions abound. Nobody talks about them in our culture because they're unpopular and to to speak out against them would be to you know, be sexist and old-fashioned and all of this. But in an environment where you have two working people, um, there's those tensions. Who makes more? Who's the breadwinner? Whose time is more valuable? Um, when two people are working outside of the home, then what does that mean? And they're both working full-time. Then what does that mean in terms of the internal duties of the home? When that time is, you know, maybe, maybe one of the two works part-time. How does that calculate then in, in terms of the symmetry of household duties? There's all these tensions we've invented for ourselves in the modern world. And it is the dissolution of many a marriage, um, these kinds of uh, attentions based on the system that we have created and enabled. So just a little further, and then I'll pause to see if you have any reflections on this. I know that this is all very countercultural, you know, offensive to our modern sensibilities but I kind of like it. I think Chrysostom's a breath of fresh air. So he continues. God provided for peace by reserving the suitable position for each. He divided our life into these two parts, again, public and private is what he has in mind, and gave the more necessary and important to the man, but the lesser and inferior part to the woman. I mean, there again, I, I disagree with the characterization. Chrysostom continues, in this way he arranged that we should admire the man more because we need his service more, and that because the woman has a humbler form of service, she would not rebel against her husband. Okay, well that takes some, you know, it takes some sorting out in your mind. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really like this inferior-superior part. But the final sentiment, the final sentiment, that there not be that there not be competition against husband, you know, husband against wife, wife against husband, um, such that such that then there's this like there's this rebelliousness and there's this uh, this the sense of like the family being a two-headed snake, you know, <laughs> both head pulling either direction. 
Um, so I think that sentiment that he's expressing is, is right on. And um, it factors into his larger rhetorical point, which is, um, look, if you marry for money, of course he has the male marrying a female in view, but if you, it works both ways. If you marry for money, that money's only going to bring with it problems, especially if you're trying to be the head of the house and the, the female has all this money and doesn't need to listen to you, doesn't want to listen to you. Um, the power structure and dynamic is upside down so that functionally she is acting as though she were the head. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's how this point factors into his larger rhetoric. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts, and then we're, uh, we're going to skip around a bit. Yes, sir. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, it, I guess it always seems that people are needing to see psychiatrists and, and that kind of thing um, because they're unhappy and unfulfilled and whatever their problems are. How much do you think this, by not... Holding to this dynamic, how much of the problem with the the psychosis of the of our country today do you think is caused by either men being trying to be mommies in the house or women trying to be the men of the house? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I you know I don't know quite how to quite how to quantify it, but I, th I, think, I think in one sense, I think in one sense, um, whether you're living in a society that's sort of faithful to these principles that Chrysostom is laying out, or one that's very unfaithful to them as we are here in this country, either society is going to be filled with problems, and marital problems, and all, the, all kinds of problems, simply because of the existence of sin. I think, I think where the critique is so poignant um, against us is that the kind, of, the kind of sin, the kind of perversion and distortion that we're engaged in really destroys the fabric of society. So I think you could make that argument. In that sense, it's more pernicious it's, it, because it undermines the very fabric of the family and of, of gender roles and of our identity as, as people in a family unit. So I think that that's, you know, you're going to have sin either way. You're going to have, but our, the nature of our sin is, is deconstructing what God has constructed. Yeah. Did I see a, yes? Um, in, in the secular uh, world with marriage classes and, uh, marriage training, it, it talks a lot about the two needs of uh, husband and wife, the husband needing respect and the wife needing to be cherished. But what jumps off the page to me here from your, you know, fr from this section is uh, both need respect. I don't know about the cherished side, but um, from a standpoint, what, what does respect, can you translate that into... Uh, um, what God would want us to do? Uh, I mean, is respect part of the way we treat one another, or is there another word which is more descriptive in a, a theological sense, I guess? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'd have to think about that a little to give a, to give a good and thorough well, answer. Off the top of my head, um, of course, the, that language of love and respect uh, comes from the scriptures, from Paul's pen. Okay. And so it would make sense then to flesh that out with the other terms and definitions that Paul uses for that relationship. So, you know, what does it look like for a wife to respect her husband? We might go to the other verses where Paul describes what it is that a wife ought to be about and do. And, you know, they're, they're, um, they're the model in many respects for the, for the submission of the wife to husband, which is key. The model is the submission of the son to the father. Mm -hmm. They're equals, but that's the ordering. And so the son submits himself to the father. Um, the, the thought just came to mind of the fourth commandment, honor. 
you know, mm -hmm. honor is, is, I think, in that word respect, too. You know, mm -hmm. you honor and value the, uh, the gifts that God has given your spouse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyway, I yeah. just yeah. just mention that. Yeah, you've kind of got this thing where, um, where the son submits himself to the father, the man submits himself to the son, the wife submits herself to the man, the children submit themselves to the parents. You kind of have this, you know, this dynamic going on. And then, um, and then there's a sense in which, of course, the same directionality applies by way of the role of man. And then w the second half of the equation, what does it mean for man to love his wife? And as the, as the father sends the son to redeem the church, so the so the the husband is sent to sacrifice himself and love and cherish his wife and so then the love takes on the christological form of christ's love for the church self-sacrifice for the church and provision for the church so then those are the key elements of what it means for uh and i think i think part of that is is a kind of gentleness because um for the, the very strengths of men in terms of their external, uh, their ability to do business in the external world, having a thick skin, a sharp tongue, healthy dose of, you know, yeah, no, I guess that's thick skin. Just, you know, rational, slightly more dispassionate, that kind of thing, um, can, can be detrimental in terms of how one engages with a wife. And so there's admonition to be tender-hearted and um, gentle and that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of a shape and, and form of that love too. So anyway, that that would be my approach to that question. Yes, please. I do better with a response if I write this out, but here goes. Um, I I would um, alter his use of the word. Um, Oh, goodness. <laughs> like the inferior, are you talking about yes, how Yes, inferior yeah, yeah. And, and superior. Yeah, kind of I like would that. I would move it simply into the domain of different. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're different. And, and, and it, here we are again with the prideful dimension of mankind. Mm -hmm. we're, we're always wrestling with pride. Yeah. yeah. And again, and, and it, this verse, this part of... Galatians 5 comes up, in my mind at least, when the Holy Spirit controls our life, he will, he will produce this kind of fruit in us, love, joy, and these, these are elements of manhood. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Um, Gentleness, self-control. Yes, all of those. They, they are called forth from manhood as well as womanhood. Yes, right, right. And, and it is uh, non-essential from my viewpoint to make, to reference all of this within the context of what you said earlier, the, the uh, superior to the inferior. Yeah, yeah. I share, I share your critique on that, and I, I, suspect that I, I suspect that he defined that in a way more palatable than it kind of just comes off the page. Um, yeah, because without, without trying to be selfish, I'm sure there's a selfish element. I mean, I don't know what, what man thinks that, his, that the work he's doing is actually more important than the well-being of his children. I, you know what I mean? That's, I, yeah, I think, if so, that man has something disordered um, because because, I mean, something has gone astray if you're doing work for work's sake or work for your ego's sake. Work in a fallen world is to put a roof over heads and bread on table so that, so that children can be raised in a godly way unto eternal life. I mean, the whole thing functions to serve wife and children. Um, and that's, that is where I think, too, uh, men can, men's external affairs can get distorted when it becomes a thing unto itself and, uh, and a matter of pride. But anyway, then, then y'all, yeah, what is, so then if you're defining things that way and thinking of things that way in this healthy kind of balance and what's truly important, 
in what sense is the internal affairs not the utmost important? And in what sense don't the external affairs only serve the internal affairs, you see? So I suspect that Chrysostom is well aware of all this and would, um, would you know, if he were sitting here with us, would clarify along these or similar lines, I suspect. Okay, any other, uh, any other thoughts we have? All right, let's, let's do a bit of jumping around. And I'm sorry for this. Uh, page 98, let's pick up in the middle of that, that big continued paragraph. Three, six, nine, maybe 11. 11 lines down from the top. Marriage. Yeah. Marriage does not exist to fill our houses with war and battles, to give us strife and contention, to pit us against each other and make our life unlivable. It exists in order that we may enjoy another's help, that we may have a harbor, a refuge, and a consolation in the troubles which hang over us, and that we may converse happily with our wife. Again, I think that there's some mutuality here, like, like that this is the ideal home for for both husband and wife. Um, of course, Chrysostom is speaking from the, from the husband's perspective. And I would, simply, I would simply add to that, so while there is mutuality here, uh, the idea, the idea, um, you know, if you look at this as a system, so, so the man's out in the world, he's in the, he's in the public sphere, and he's, and he's dealing with um, all that that brings, the sinfulness, the competition, the struggles, the strife, the stresses. The ideal home is one that, and I forget, this is, I think it's paraphrasing Luther or somebody, but the, you know, the, from this angle, the, the joy of a wife is to, make, is to make the husband want to come home and not want to go to work, <laughs> you know, to provide, to provide that contrast with the world. Um, where the world is filled with strife, here it's not filled with strife. In the world, you have to fight to, to put your will forward. Here you don't have to fight to put your will forward. You know, that from a male perspective is, is sort of the salve and medicine, the relief, having home be a, a harbor and a refuge. All too, I, I think all too frequently in our culture, feminism has all but destroyed this so that when the man comes, comes home, often there's more contention and more strife, and he has to fight even harder to get his will done. And then this has all sorts of ill effects. He wants to stay away from the home, so he works more. Meanwhile, he becomes more passive at work and less successful in the world because he's fighting his battles Internally and externally, he's trying to find his harbor and refuge. Okay, can this all be flipped around, you know, and, and made um, equal? Sure, it could, but I'm simply going to treat this in the direction that, um, that Chrysostom here treats it. Uh, obviously, obviously, the man wants to provide enough um, that, that that home can be a refuge and a harbor, um, and that the, uh, the wife and children have what they need in order to um, have, have domestic tranquility and peace at home, etc. Hey, but this is the goal. That's the vision. That's the vision for what the home would be like, um, a harbor and a refuge. Okay, he goes on to talk about um, the problems of uh, choosing a mate on the basis of money or wealth or material success. And that that ends up just bringing contentions with it. His final line of this paragraph, thus money is of no use when we do not have a partner with a good soul. So positively, when we're looking to choose a wife, when a wife is looking to choose a husband, we want to look at things like the goodness of the soul, not the uh, potential for earning. All right, uh, over on 99, first full paragraph there right in the middle of the page, Chrysostom says, Since we know all this, let us not investigate our bride's money, but the gentleness of her character and her piety and chastity. A wife who is chaste, gentle, 
and moderate, even if she is poor, can make poverty better than wealth. Likewise, a wife who is corrupt, undisciplined, and contentious, even if she has immeasurable treasure stored away, blows it away more quickly than any wind, and surrounds her husband with innumerable misfortunes along with poverty. So let us not seek a wealthy wife, but one who will use well what we have. All right, so here um, positive, positive kinds of virtues, rather than looking at money or physical attraction or um, whatever, the, whatever romanticism might set in front of us here, Chrysostom points out um, chastity, gentleness, piety, moderation. And again, I think that um, I think that these apply equally between the sexes. I mean, wouldn't this be a, wouldn't these be virtues you'd want in a future husband as well? I think so. I think so. And um, you know, as we look at this, those of us who are married, we we see then things to which we can aspire, and we see a vision um, for how it is that we can. Uh, try to sh shape our own souls and our own homes so as to, uh, insofar as we're able, create a marriage as, as God would have it and a home as God would have it. All right, any thoughts? Please interrupt me if you do, otherwise we'll just keep going along. Next paragraph. You must learn first what the purpose of marriage is and why it was introduced into our life. Do not ask anything else. What then is the reason for marriage, and why did God give it to us? Listen to what Paul says. Because of the temptation to immorality, let each man have his own wife. He does not say, because of the relief from poverty, or because of the acquisition of wealth. But what? In order that we may avoid fornication, restrain our desire, practice chastity, and be well-pleasing to God by being satisfied with our own wife. This is the gift of marriage. This is its fruit. This is its profit. Okay, well, there's a lot packed in there. Of course, the theme that we've heard him say repeatedly, um, that we may avoid fornication. But hidden therein is this kind of domestication of the male. And um, I, maybe wives are aware of this. I, those of you who are wives, maybe this rings a bell, maybe it doesn't. But I think to most men it does. There's a sense in which you recognize that you have been domesticated, and it's good. <laughs> it's good. You're not running around with the pack of boys. You're not staying out all night. You're, you're risk-taking behaviors. You know, it's, I, I mean, I, even, something so, even something so silly as, like, going out into big surf, you think twice about it when you have little kids. You go, eh, maybe not today. That's the kind of domestication we undergo as males. Whereas, you know, if you're 18, you don't have a wife and kids, you don't even think about it. It doesn't even cross your mind. Of course I'm going to go do that. Then you get a wife, you start to think a little more. You get kids, you go, oh gosh, I've got to preserve myself for their sake. So there's this domestication that takes place. Um, there's this shaping of a, really of a, of a boy into a man that can take place in the context of marriage, um, where a man learns responsibility and selflessness. And then also, and here's the key, satisfaction. To simply be satisfied, to receive the wife in whatever form she is in as God's gift, and to be satisfied, not dissatisfied. So there's a great and lifelong lesson to be learned there as well. Okay, so there's, uh, there's the finger pointed at males in some respect as to, as to what we ought to be seeking and learning and experiencing in marriage um, that, that improves us spiritually, morally, etc. Okay, um, let's just pick up with the very last two words on page 99, continuing this general thought. They will be, this will be the case if we marry such brides as are able to bring great piety. And again, what are we talking about when we're talking about piety? We're talking about that they have a close relationship with God, that they want, that they value things very concretely like going to church and prayer and family devotions and 
conducting themselves in a Christian manner. You know, that's piety. Chastity and goodness to us. Yeah, so rather than a wife that brings you, you know, what do men, what do men think about? Sex, fulfillment of the lust, uh, arm candy, so that other people will think you're, you know, you've got a hot wife, and so you must be very, uh, very successful. Um, you know, these are these are the the reasons why you know men very often select mates. So instead, instead, Chrysostom puts before us piety, chastity, and goodness. Women who will bring that into our lives. He continues the beauty of the body. If it is not joined with the virtue of the soul, we'll be able to hold a husband for 20 or 30 days, but we'll go no farther before it shows its wickedness and destroys all its attractiveness. Yeah, so the same principle of all that wealth, you know, if you marry for money and, it, and you've got all that wealth, but you don't have a virtuous woman, all that wealth is, is going to be worthless to you. It's going to be worse than worthless. And so too, if you marry a, a beautiful or physically attractive woman only for that sake, it becomes a curse to you if she's, if she's not virtuous, if she's wicked. Um, in terms of inchastity, it becomes a perpetual worry <laughs> and a sense of insecurity. Um, and even when that's not there, if she doesn't bring goodness or virtue, that attractiveness... Uh, fades away very quickly. <laughs> think, of, think of Hollywood and, and all the, the very, very beautiful and attractive people marrying each other all the time. How long does it last? I think Hollywood's divorce rate is way worse than the general population's. So looks, looks uh, don't last, and the attractiveness of the body is easily, easily overcome by the unattractiveness of a soul. All right. Now, from here until almost the conclusion of the sermon, um, he, Chrysostom runs through the story of Abraham and Abraham's selecting of a bride for his son Isaac. And of course, if you recall, Abraham sends a servant to do this task. So much time is spent on the one hand talking about Abraham's virtue and how virtuous he must be if he was able to instruct this, uh, this servant such that he could trust him completely with such an important affair. And then this servant goes and is to find, uh, if you recall b- the biblical story, is, is to go and find a spouse for Isaac. And indeed, he ends up finding uh, Rebekah. So... <clears throat> Let's just touch on a, on a couple of these themes. Very bottom of page 101. It was not only to explain this that he said, who took me from my father's house, but also to show that God owed him something. This is very interesting language. He is in debt to us. Abraham says. That is, Abraham saying, God is in debt to us. He himself said, I will give this land to you and to your seed, to your offspring. So even if we are unworthy, yet because of his promise, in order to bring it to fulfillment, he will be with us. He will make all our tasks easy and will accomplish this undertaking for which we pray. With these words, he sent the servant on his way. So here's a rather beautiful uh, meditation. Very interesting to think of God owing us. Uh, Interesting in two ways. It's It's not at all contrary to the character of God. And it's a fascinating way to consider that God would make himself our debtor, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, or because in and of itself um, God owes us anything, but rather precisely because God promises. God promises. So he promised, of course, that Abraham, um, he would be with him. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, They would enter the promised land, etc. So, when God promises something, he says, I, I promise to give you this, then, then he owes us that thing. 
And that's a, that's a, it's kind of a strange way of talking, but it's a beautiful thing that God does because we see the humility of, of his heart and yet his powerfulness to make it so. And we see the faith of Abraham, that if God has promised it, then it will be, and so we can base all of our doings upon his promise. So I think, I, and, and then interesting on another level too, that this is Chrysostom saying this. You know, this, this could just as easily be something from the pen of Luther, um, especially in regard to the importance of the promise. And here it's Chrysostom a thousand years earlier. All right, um, page 103. Hmm. How to get us there? Three, six, nine, about 12 lines from the top over all the way on the right-hand side of the column, you'll see the word often that starts a sentence. Often, many of these, okay, so he's reflecting on, if you remember, the servant is, is by the well, and he's going he's gonna to see the, the, you know, Rebecca by the well. So often, many of these women who carry water have a full inheritance of virtue, while others who sit around in fancy houses are more common and worse than anyone. Then how will you know that the woman is virtuous? From the sign, he says, which I named. How is this a sign of virtue? It is a most unmistakable sign. This is a great enough sign of generosity to provide full proof. What he says is indeed such a sign, even if he does not utter those words. I am looking for the kind of girl who is so hospitable that she will offer all the service in her power. You recall that um, he offer, she offers him not only a drink, but then gives water also to his camel. So, she's, so this is the two sides of the virtue of Rebecca as Chrysostom is giving it to us. On the one hand, she's industrious, servant-hearted, um, hospitable, these kinds of things. And yet, on the other side, she's going to be uh, moderate and chaste and respectful and respectable. So um, those, those two somewhat countervailing uh, virtues here embodied in Rebecca. Yes, and we'll simply, let's, let's turn to 106 and we'll pick up on this theme that I was just mentioning. So uh, these, two, these two virtues of generosity and yet modesty. So first full paragraph on page 106. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Pray, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When he had finished drinking, she said, I will draw for your camels also until all of them drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw and bring water for all his camels. Um, this reference to Genesis 24. Great was the generosity of this woman and great was her modesty. You may learn both these virtues of hers from what she did and what she said. Do you see how her modesty did not spoil her generosity, nor her generosity corrupt her modesty? Because of her modesty, she did not run to meet the man nor address him first. Because of her generosity and hospitality, she did not refuse or deny what he requested. If she had run up to him and addressed him before he said anything, we would call her bold and shameless. If she had avoided him when he asked for help, we would call her cruel and inhuman. In fact, she did not do either of these things. She did not spoil her generosity because of her modesty, nor because of her generosity did she make herself less deserving to be praised for her modesty. She showed the full measure of each virtue. She proved her modesty 
by waiting for his request and her great generosity by assisting him after his request. Indeed, it indicates great generosity not only to give what is asked, but to offer even more than what is requested. If what she gave was only water, that is what she had in her power at the time. We judge generosity not by the value of the gift, but by the resources of the giver. It's kind of a nice point, isn't it? God praised the person who gave a cup of cold water, reference to Matthew 10. He also said that the woman who contributed two small coins had given more than all the others since she had given everything she had, Luke 21. In the same way, Rebecca welcomed that noble stranger with the best that she could offer him. Okay, so this is interesting, and interesting by way of portrait, I, you know, for females to aspire to, for men to, to seek after, and that is these uh, <coughs> dual and somewhat uh, countervalent virtues of generosity and modesty, the balance between the two. All right, any thoughts? So far, so good? Okay. We've got enough time. Let's simply, let's simply pick up on 107, um, basically where we left off, that first full paragraph anyway. The words quickly and she ran show you how eagerly Rebecca did the deed, not unwillingly, not as if forced, not with vexation or annoyance. We know from experience that this is not a small matter. We have often asked someone who is passing by with a torch to stop a moment and give us a light, or someone who was carrying water to give us a drink, and he, w and he has not granted it, but instead has become angry. She, however, not only let down her jar for him, but even drew water for all his camels. She undertook so much effort and offered her physical labor for the sake of hospitality with great politeness. Her virtue appears not only in what she did, but in her willingness in doing it. She even called the man my lord, although he was unknown to her and had just appeared for the first time. Her father-in-law Abraham did not ask the travelers, Who are you? Where do you live? Where are you going? Where have you come from? He simply earned the credit for hospitality. In the same way, and I think that this is reference to, remember when... Um, Abraham hosted the, the angels and the Lord and got that text. In the same way, Rebecca did not say, Who are you? Where do you live? Why have you come here? She gained the credit for hospitality and omitted everything superfluous. Those who sell pearls for gold seek only one thing, to make a profit from the people with money, not to investigate their backgrounds. She also sought only this one thing to receive the profit of hospitality, to gain the fitting reward. She knew very well that a stranger is often ashamed to ask for what he needs. For this re reason, the situation calls for great goodwill and for uninquisitive self-restraint. If we are too inquisitive and nosy, the stranger hesitates and shrinks back and goes unhappily on his way. This is why she did not ask questions of the man nor her father-in-law of the three strangers, in order not to flush the quarry. He just took care of the travelers, and when he had gained from them what he wished, he sent them on their way, so that, so that time he even entertained angels. If he had been inquisitive, the reward laid up for him would have been reduced. Indeed, we admire him, this is a great point, not so much for any entertaining angels as for entertaining them unawares. Okay, this is a reference to Hebrews um, 13.2. This idea that we may um, entertain angels unawares to, so therefore be uh, hospitable and show hospitality. Um, here Chrysostom directly ties that to Abraham and to Abraham hosting the Lord and the angels. Um, if you recall, they're on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't inquire who they are. 
but he serves them as, as if they were angels, not even knowing they're angels. That's the beauty of, the, of virtue. They could have been anyone, and he treated them that way. So this is a great point. We admire him not so much for entertaining angels, but for entertaining them unawares. And Chrysostom continues, If he had served them knowingly, he would not have been doing anything remarkable. A worthy guest forces even the most stony and hard-hearted host to become loving and gentle. What is remarkable in this case is that thinking they were mere travelers, he took such good care of them. Rebecca was the same kind of person. She did not know who the man was, nor for what purpose he had come, nor that he had come to court her. She thought he was just some stranger and traveler. Therefore, her reward for hospitality became greater because she welcomed a man who was completely unknown to her with so much goodwill, yet at the same time she preserved her modesty. All right, well, some fun things there and some fun treatment of of Scripture that I thought was worth us looking at together. Any, uh, any thoughts, any questions? Are we okay? I see one hand pop up, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. We'll have no problem finishing today. That line, the respecter of persons, when, when, we're, when we have, uh, I would say, a continuation of, of our expression of response to God's laws to us, mm-hmm. being attentive to all mankind eliminates that respecter of persons domain yeah. and and there's there's I, I, I like the feel of the purity of that I never experience it within myself because I'm full of evil you know <laughs> but um, I know I know you you have the same reflection I do when we look at yes. when we look at these texts and see the virtue of the fathers. But this is why they were so highly extolled and respected, by the way, um, because we saw how good and virtuous they were. And, and we seek to emulate them in, in so far as we can, at least to open those vistas to us. And of course, the accusation of that, the accusation of the law and our own lovelessness comes against us. And, and in that sense, just directs and drives us to Christ Jesus. And we see, we see his tremendous virtues, but not in a way that, that condemn us, but his virtues poured out for us um, as, as he lays down his own life to make atonement for our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness and loves us in such a, a perfect and never-ending way that he forgives us all our sins, not even seven times a day, but infinitely, you know, each and every day pours out his mercy upon us. It's great. Yeah, so thank you for that. Thank you for that. But it's we live in such a virtueless society and even kind of this weird little ghetto of Christianity where sometimes virtue is thought to be a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> it's a little upside down. Uh, it's just so refreshing. It's so refreshing. And it opens up vistas. It's inspiring, I think, to, to want to be more hospitable to strangers without losing modesty or you know, being foolish or anything, but to just show hospitality. And what a, what a mark that can leave because the world is so loveless in these latter days and so cruel and cold, probably worse than it was at that time even. Okay. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sorry to have you running the microphone all across the room here. One thing that I notice that I, I think is impressive, uh, especially about Rebecca, is that she likes people and possibly likes men. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of women today, you can tell, they just don't like men. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe vice versa, too. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we, we miss the miscommunicator, miss the mark, because, you know, it, it's just evident that yeah, nobody, so, nobody likes each other. Right, right. Yeah, very well said. She's, she's super outgoing, generous, hospitable, without being immodest. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's the safeguard there, right? Yeah. We may run across it. We may run across it. But it's like, 
if you're if you're sort of overly overly modest, you're never going to do anything for the other person, right? right. Um, if you're overly generous, you're going to lose modesty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's this great this great balance and kind of counterbalance between these virtues um, exhibited by Rebecca. And, and again, I mean, yeah, we're talking about a female here. I think it's I think it's kind of universal, you know. You, you've got you've got a, a type for just human interaction period and interaction between the sexes that's good and wholesome. I just yes, wanted to comment please, please. Uh, on the quality these same qualities of Rebecca in her later life when she had dynamics in her family where there was favoritism and she acted as a mediator and tried to you know uh, these same qualities seem to have stayed there and uh, mm -hmm. she was uh, although maybe she did some favoritism there at the end <laughs> yeah we we do you know with all of these with all of these biblical figures we see their virtues we also see their vices laid out and and their insecurities and their weak spots and it's true with Rebecca uh, it's true with Isaac it's true with Abraham and even Sarah of course his bride yeah, we see their virtues and their and their vices, their shortcomings. From their from their vices, I, we take great comfort because we realize that God is is the savior of sinners, and He loves sinners, and He works with and through sinners, and so He blots out all our iniquities and doesn't even reckon our sins against us. You know, if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged, and if we if we judge ourselves rightly. You know, it's like a parent. It's like a parent with a, with a child. If your child judges, judges himself or herself rightly, do you, need, do you need to say anything as a parent? No. We, there's, we, say, we say, he's his own worst punishment, or she's already punished herself. You know, that's the kind of view we have. And that's how God sees us when we experience contrition and repentance over our sins. He says, well, I don't. Why would I need to say anything more? I don't need to heap guilt upon this person, or you know. And that's precisely what's meant. Like he won't, he won't break the, the bruised reed or snuff out the. You know, he's not going to push it, because he's a good father. Yeah, and so then, then encouraged and strengthened by that, that the that the great patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith had vices and yet were forgiven much by God. We too are forgiven. And then to see their virtues and to aspire towards those ourselves in whatever small way. And this is the beautiful thing, too, in a way that just pleases God. You know, it's very unlikely that we're going to have our names penned in some part of Scripture and people, you know, 4,000 years from now are going to be talking about our virtues. That's not likely to happen. But, but, to simply, to simply be virtuous because it pleases God and to see our lives in, in light of His, His fatherly eyes, uh, what a joy, what a blessing that is. Okay, well, um, let, me, let me see if I can point out anything else in the next couple pages as our time winds down. <laughs> he gets to touch one more time on the wedding celebration. Did you notice that? On page, uh, page 112. We'll touch on that. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get two more quotes and then be done for today. Page 112, uh, first full paragraph. Now let us see, once he had obtained the bride, how he arranged the wedding celebration. Did he bring along a load of cymbals, pipes, drums, flutes, singers, dancers, and all that kind of display? None of these. But taking Rebecca alone, he departed to escort and accompany her he had with him the same angel whom his master had besought God to send along with him when he set out from his house. For the rest, the bride was wedded without hearing flutes, lyres, or any other instruments, but bearing innumerable blessings from God on her head, a crown more glorious than any diadem. She was wedded wearing no golden robe, but chastity, piety, generosity, and every other virtue." She was wedded not riding in an enclosed carriage or any such ostentatious vehicle, but sitting on her camel. Along with virtue in their souls, 
The maidens of ancient times used to have a great vigor in their bodies. Their mothers did not raise them as mothers do now, corrupting them with frequent baths, perfumed ointments, cosmetics, soft garments, and many other such influences, making them weaker than they should be. Um, those mothers gave their daughters all kinds of hardy training. Okay, well, let's pause there. It's an interesting portrait of true femininity that he points out here, that true femininity can roll up its sleeves, get its hands dirty, be vigorous, um, vigorous in service, vigorous in life. Uh, very, very different, of course. I mean, how, what would he say today about Instagram and the constant, like, you know, makeup and priming and posing I, that both sexes, frankly, do. But um, what would he say, you know? And, and the kind of, even the kind of fitness that people do these days is very, <laughs> it's not very functional. It's just, for, uh, it's just for glamour and looking in the mirror and looking good on social media. Um, so this is a really interesting portrait of, of humanity in general, to be physically vigorous, um, and then of femininity in particular. Um, that, that Christian would take the, point, the, the time to point this out, um, that this is yet another virtue um, that one may look for in choosing a spouse. Um, uh, the kind of vigor that says, hey, I can roll up my sleeves and get things done physically uh, and, and impose the, the internal virtues on the external world. All right, that, um, on 113 he wraps up this treatment of uh, chiefly Rebecca, though it stems all the way back to Abraham. And we get, his, he, we get his closing thoughts on 113 and 114. Let's pick up the top of 114. We'll have this quote. We'll see if you have any comments. And then we will put this book behind us. <clears throat> Very top of 114. Rather, we shall enjoy great tranquility and great harmony. When we have these, the other virtues will undoubtedly follow. Just as when a wife is at odds with her husband, nothing will be healthy in the household, even if all other affairs are flowing with the current. So when the wife is in harmony and peace with her husband, nothing will be unpleasant, even if innumerable storms arise every day. I think this is a beautiful vision and a, and a beautiful statement um, for what, uh, of course, what God intends marriage to be, but what we can aspire inside of marriage to have our marriages be. That is to say that husband and wife, the two being joined into one, are, are united against the troubles. And that's kind of a key, it's kind of a key thing, too, when you have um, conflict, uh, to, to say, hey, instead of looking at my, con you know, it's my conflict against you, your conflict, you know, it's I want this, you want that, um, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. How about, if we, how about if we join on the same side and say, I don't want you to lose, you don't want me to lose, this is the problem, how do we, how do we come to a solution that's going to be best for us and palatable? So that we view all of life as um, a unity in marriage by which we look at all other things. So we have harmony and peace, and then we can look at all the different storms that arise, and even those aren't as unpleasant as they would be. The flip side is that if everything else is going great in life, but, you've got to, but, but you're at odds with your spouse, isn't it interesting how that colors everything else and hardly anything else is enjoyable? So to get that relationship right is key. And as Chris Estub points out, is key for the interworkings of the entire family, um, for the children as well. As he says, if a wife is at odds with her husband, nothing will be healthy in the household. All right, just a few more lines. If marriages are begun in this way, we will be able to raise our children to virtue with great ease. I love this. What's the goal of raising children? To raise them to virtue, to piety, to godliness. When the mother is so decorous and chaste and endowed with every virtue, she will undoubtedly be able to attract her husband and subject him to love for her. When she has caught him, she will keep him willingly helping her in the care of the children. And so she will bring God's providence to join in this same care. This is, this is a great place to end as I get attacked by a moth here. 
Um, it's a great place to end because this is the true power of femininity. In submitting to husband, husband submits himself. In loving, um, it's precisely in loving selflessly that she has herself taken care of. Uh, this is the power and strength of femininity and femininity within marriage such that um, simply by being a virtuous, the husband ends up subjecting himself to his love for her and willingly helping her, etc., etc. Just a beautiful way to a beautiful way to end. Okay. Well, I hope you have enjoyed, or at least learned something, from uh, Saint John Chrysostom on marriage and family life. A rich text. Next week, uh, we will look at Wolf Mueller's text on Christianity in America. We'll see whether or not it has failed. The Lord be with you.